a.m. dear listener, and welcome to the fourth episode of the Metacast Crypto Corner. I'm your host, Nico, and today I'm joined by Lars Doucet, Ryan Foe, and Miko Matsumura. And we're having a discussion about something that I'm super excited about, and that is the sustainability of play-to-earn games and their economies. But before we dive in, let's get to know each other a little bit. First up, we have Lars Totally Texas Doucet, also known as Larsius Prime. Um, and he's a, a quite brilliant game designer and researcher, and he did a lot of work on Navic's deep dive into Axie Infinity, which kind of sparked this whole discussion uh, higher up than it already was. Uh, for those of you who don't know you, Lars, do you want to do a brief intro about yourself? Yeah, so just me personally, or about the paper as well? We'll get into that. No, no, later. just you first. Okay, just me first. Okay, so I'm a game developer, um, so I've worked on mostly indie games, but I, you know, some of my own games, including a game called Defender's Quest, but I've also got credits on Brawlhalla, um, Dicey Dungeons, Friday Night Funkin', um, so some other people's projects as well. And then I've been a writer and an analyst for, I don't know, kind of happened by accident somewhere in the last decade. You just blog long enough and people start listening and that, that becomes kind of intimidating. Um, and so I work with Novik and um, on some analysis of blockchain games. That's something I've gotten into pretty recently, like last six months. Mm. Um, and that's who I am and that's what I do. I guess other notable thing is that I did some work for Valve on their website um, about a year ago. Okay, cool. And where can people find you if they uh, strongly disagree with your opinions? Oh, yes, yes, yes. Uh, we have many ways to disagree with me. Um, Twitter is, of course, the place to disagree with anyone you disagree with. So at Larcius Prime, and then I have my own blog at fortressofdoors.com, where I pollute the internet with my opinions. Cool. Awesome. All right. And then next up, we have Ryan Foe. Ryan is part of an organization that I look up to a lot. And if you know the blockchain industry a bit, uh, there's a chance you've already come across Delphi or Delphi Digital. Um, and he is a game economist there, and so perfectly suited for uh, this discussion. Ryan, is there uh, anything else about yourself you'd like to share? Yeah, um, happy to share about um, basically previously used to work uh, on a few play to earn games, so for white papers, and really develop gameplay for some of the play to earn games that are popular and you can see now. Just that you might not know who I am on those games in traditional yeah. crypto fashion. Yeah. Nice. And before that, before that, I was working um, software engineer at a games company in SF. And even before that, just a blockchain. Uh, blockchain VC called Tribe, and yeah, I'm um, also was working with uh, AMM called Kyber Network. So that was kind of my previous experiences, and and yeah, um, I write publicly, um, similar to Lars, and somehow people like to read what I write which, and find it insightful, which is nice. It's awesome. Yeah, it's always a good thing, and um, so I write publicly on. I started a metaverses. It's the meta, like meta, the new social media company and versus mm -hmm. like me playing against you versus. Right, so metaverses.substack.com is where I write a lot on sort of uh, the new kind of play to earn and play and earn possibilities, right? The new business model for games right? yeah. and how we can sort of begin to design for the business model. And I suppose that's what we talk about today. So if you want to take a look at that, um, that's metaverses. And then you can look at um, our website, DelphiDigital.io as well, which is this uh, fantastic organization that you described. Yeah. I think it needs really no further introduction. Um, yeah, yeah so, totally. Yeah. And where, where can people uh, find you? Yep, and you can find me. Um, I uh, also, if you want to get upset at me, you can upset me on Twitter. That's a, nice. that's <laughs> a zero, zero X R Y Z E, right? R Y Z E, zero X, zero X R Y Z E at, right? Um, so it's O X Rice, you can say. Is that uh, so. any relationship with the League of Legends champion? Not yet. I don't know. Maybe they, they might want to do a type of me or something one day. I don't yeah, know. yeah, we'll yeah. That, that's a dream, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm right. just kidding. Right. Ryan skin. Yeah, exactly. That'd be cool. All right, so, so next up we have uh, Miko Matsumura. I'm sorry if I, if I don't pronounce it correctly. No, so, it's good. Um, thanks. Um, Miko is a general partner at Gooby Ventures, and like the rest of us, he thinks and tweets quite a bit about blockchain games and play to earn. And um, I've actually noticed that that is a trend that all four of us share. So we, uh, we, we like talking about this. Um, and so Miko, you've done a lot of cool stuff over the years. You want to you wanna share a bit more about that? Yeah, I appreciate that. So, uh, you know, our Gumi Crypto's capital fund has been around for three and a half, four years or so. 
Uh, so we, we've done a lot of interesting deals, I guess, in this space. Notably, we were the lead investor in the strategic seed of OpenSea. Uh, we were seed investors into uh, YGG, uh, Yield Guild. Um, you know, so we definitely have been uh, bullish on the emergence of this. Uh, we we're super excited to see, uh, you know, and I, I guess for me, uh, I also am on crypto Twitter uh, getting flamed. So uh, Miko Java, M-I-K-O-J-A-V-A. And I have a show called Miko Bits, M-I-K-O-B-I-T-S. So uh, that that's kind of a, it's a YouTube podcast style show. Uh, where I've interviewed awesome. over a hundred, a hundred DeFi and NFT founders, and it sounds like I should have uh, you all on the show too. <laughs> yeah, you should. We can always have uh, have some some great discussions about that stuff as well. All right, oh, cool. Quick, quick disclosure I need to do because um, I stayed up way too late last night is I have Tourette syndrome, and uh, normally it doesn't come out on podcasts, but I made the mistake <laughs> of staying up till three a.m. last night. So if I say anything too interesting about anyone's mother, it's not. Intentional. That's not real. Right. The audience just needs to know that real quick. <laughs> That's all right. Not a worry. Um, yeah, post processing I, is powerful. <laughs> and I think, I mean, I don't think we're going to get too hostile in this discussion. I feel like we're all uh, very open-minded yeah. people, uh, willing to admit that we don't, we can't see the future, um, and willing to admit or be proven wrong. So, um, yeah, let's let's start this discussion. So, the goal of today is to have an informed but open conversation about play-to-earn games um, and the sustainability of their economies. And so, the whole discussion around this started gaining quite a lot of momentum since. Um, Two weeks ago, we did the piece about Axie Infinity. Um, and so I think it makes sense to start there and, and use that as a reference point. Um, Lars, you were pretty much in the eye of that storm. Could you briefly share your findings there um, and uh, you know, elaborate a bit on, on how Axie works very shortly and where the value is created and how people are making a living off of it? Cool. Yeah, just real quick for the audience, this is Tread Syndrome with the face here. Anyway, so let's talk about Axie. So uh, Novik... Um, commissioned me to join them and co-write a report with them. And so we did. And um, I fully admit upfront to having a bias as a blockchain skeptic. But nevertheless, we wanted to take a very honest look just at the data and try not to editorialize too much. Just let the data speak for itself. And, you know, plenty of the other co-writers with me were more closer to blockchain enthusiasts than I was. But we all came away like pretty concerned with what we found. Um, and I'll just let the data speak for itself. The main thing is that um, Axie's business model depends on growth. It earns money when it's growing. Um, conventional games earn money when they have a lot of users that, that can then be monetized. And whether you think existing business models are good or bad or exploitative or not, plenty of them are, um, the, at least you can say that they're you know, earning money when they have a stable amount of users, whether they're growing or not. You might want them to grow, but um, with Axie, it seems like growth is not a means to getting users and increasing income, it's, it, it is the source of income is the growth itself. And that's a real concern. And Sky Mavis knows this. They've admitted this in many interviews that their, um, their business model is unsustainable in its current form. And they're like, but we've seen unsustainable businesses before, Tesla, Amazon, right? So should we necessarily be concerned here? Um, because they've got all these plans that they're like, okay, we're going to transition to this and that's going to fix the problem. And that's the second half of our report is looking at all their plans. And that becomes a little more speculative, but as best as we can tell, none of those plans really firmly address the fundamental problem. And the fundamental problem is that um, if you, we use the metaphor of a carnival, right? If you have a carnival where everyone at the carnival is just someone at, in, at the stands trying to sell something to someone else, it, 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 it can't sustain itself. You need to have a large body of people coming there to eat popcorn and ride the Ferris wheel and be happy that they spent $5 and not leave the carnival expecting $6. Um, and as best we can tell, that is currently whose Axie's population is. The majority of their players are in the developed world. The majority of them are so-called scholars who are getting the assets necessary to play from sponsors and managers who take a cut of their earnings. And we, those we have good data on. It's, it's, it's the majority in both cases. The majority are scholars. The majority, the majority are in the Philippines alone. Um, and then 60 to 70% are in Southeast Asia generally, um, which is not in and of itself a bad thing or anything. Of course not, you know, good for them for uh, making a living. Um, but for Axie's economy, it doesn't seem like it can sustain itself. And a big centerpiece is that we built this graph of showing daily earnings based off of the 
payout policy per day, the price of the chief in-game currency, and um, various other factors, just how much you expect to earn charted against the average Philippine wage and the Philippine minimum wage. And it, it's, it's crashed significantly to now only the highest MMRs, that's matchmaking ranking, the highest skilled players can earn um, above the minimum wage. Now, you don't have to play Axie eight hours a day. Um, and probably, you know, if, if minimum wage jobs are backbreaking or degrading or whatever, then maybe this is still a better alternative. But the point is, whatever the motivation to play was two or three months ago, it's it has to be lower now, especially because we have some re- informal surveys from many players who seem to indicate that their primary reason for playing is to earn money. And so Axie, Axie's path to sustainability um, really looks like taking these concerns very seriously and looking at their current plans. Um, they, they need to transition to something that's not just find a way to pile more users into the system. They need to change to a different kind of economy. Because something I like to say is that um, we've had play-to-earn economies that are sustainable before. Microsoft Excel is a pay-to-play is a pay-to-earn app. You know, I I, I played a pay-to-earn app to write this report for Novik using Dropbox Paper and Microsoft Excel and Microsoft Office. You know, and got paid to play. You know, so but but the point is there: the snake's not eating its own tail. The value value is being created. It's not just digging holes to fill them in again. Um, and money is coming from outside of the system. And um, that can look a lot of different ways, but to the extent that there's a future for this, it has to lean in that direction rather than where they are at now and, and what is currently on paper is planned. They could always surprise us. They're aware of these issues. I would be shocked if they didn't um, change course from where they're currently on, um, given given all this data coming out, because we're not the only ones saying this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, th- I think you touched on the key point there, right? And that is... Where is the, the the value being added right now in Axie? The value is being added by new players coming in, expecting you know to get their own their own payout. Um, and so I guess my, my question now is to, to perhaps Miko, um, like in the future, what what is your first feedback on, on, on what Lars just said? Yeah, I mean, I think it's great. Uh, you know, I, I love really cogent, uh, intelligent research. I love the attention to the numbers, you know, and I don't refute kind of the core uh, model assumptions. You know, one of the things that, uh, you know, we as kind of early stage investors in YGG, you know, really did was, you know, we, we looked hard at Axie, right? So, you know, it, we actually passed the Axie investment opportunity, even though, you know, we were excited about it, uh, you know, but we really liked YGG because YGG has the potential to sort of survive a creative destruction event around something like an Axie, right? So, you know, w- what we know from the game industry history is that hits are are very uh, mercurial. So hits come and go, you know, so we're looking for horizontalities. We're looking for things that can be much more durable. But, you know, that being said, like, you know, we do uh, have a good faith in the team we do uh, of Axie. Uh, we do think that, you know, they, they are making some pretty cogent and exciting plans that I, at least I'm aware of, uh, you know, and I think that the things that they're doing um, with the platform itself, with Ronin, I think is, is quite interesting. And so, you know, we may end up with a multi-economy, multi-game universe that, you know, isn't necessarily dependent only on you know, what today we call Axie, right? And the Axie franchise is an IP franchise, so it isn't necessarily the game as we know it today. So so Axie is, is you know, ha- has, a, I think, a potential future. It just has to participate in its own creative destruction. Hmm. Yeah. Um, before, because I'd like to touch on, on how you would see, like, Axie, uh, you know, creating value or players creating value within Axie in a sustainable way. Before that, Ryan, you wanna you wanna add something on on, on the points that Lars Lars made? Yeah, no. Um, similar to Miko, I will say that um, it's an excellence of summary and excellence of report, right? But you just sort of dive in and you know back your kind of findings with data and the qualitative research. And yeah, I think the the main idea that I like to bring here is. Related to the fact that actually, you know, one thing was that um, it's again, as Miko shared, it's not really complete yet. It's not. It's not really finished. It's really, you know, an alpha stage, right? And they managed to release this gameplay. And the second is that the scholarship dynamic and you know this entire dynamic of players coming in in order to you know make a wage within the game is something that uh it was emergent, right? It was it's an accident of history that it happened, and um, so now I, I agree that uh the current um, model. Um, and the way in which, uh, you know, if you take this particular assumption, 
and if and only if you take this particular assumption that like the carnival analogy stands true for majority or most of the players, then then by by default it would be unsustainable in that kind of way. So that's that's what I would say. And um, to to Axie's credit, I think you know, and Skymaker's credit, of course, they they have um, spoken about plans in order to, for example, um, reduce pressure on the on the economy by um, you know, allowing people to release axes that are not not as useful any longer. For example, um, introducing new forms of gameplay and the Axie franchise uh, and increasing you know, different ways in which players can have fun in the game. I think the important question when we talk about like play to earn games, right? And you know, this is almost, I would like to expand the conversation a bit more broad from here because I mean, Axie is just one sort of play to earn economy. Um, and you know, it really has pioneered this play to earn model, but there's hundreds of potential models for all these different genres we have not discovered yet, right? That could be sustainable or at least more sustainable, but it does not rely as much on sort of um, the players coming in um, and such like that, right? So I think going back to the idea of play, going back to the idea of games in, in general, it's like why players end up playing for paying for games, right? So in level two of metaverses talk about that, why players end up playing for games, right? Or the ways players end up playing for games, sorry. So how does money enter the system, so, so mm -hmm. to speak? One is uh, the attention, right? So that's the free-to-play model where you know you show them ads and they get attention. Second, their, their engagement and then their, their, their actual money, right? Um, so when they actually pay for microtransactions or when they buy a premium game, they pay for the box cost up front, right? And then they get the game. And that's how you know sort of money enters into the system of the game. The, the thing is that um, I think this is a nuanced point here related to kind of DeFi and how DeFi kind of plays a role within... Uh, these, these game economies is that the the amount that's in the treasury actually could be could be utilized in a way to kind of keep that sustainable and have inflows into the game economy. That yeah, this is quite nuanced here. So um, we can we can definitely dive a bit deeper into that. But uh, that's that's one way that could happen. Um, the the next kind of point uh, that'll be interesting to think about is like why players end up paying for games, right? So why players end up coming to the carnival and saying like, hey, um, instead of paying um, Five dollars instead of paying if instead of paying five dollars and I want to get six dollars, maybe I pay five dollars and then get three dollars back, right? And I think that's like much more sustainable, right? If I pay five dollars, I get four dollars back. I think the clearest example here, if to to the World of Warcraft players, right, um, in in the house, who you know, I used to play Frost Mage, um, and uh, when I I think you know when in Ralph Village King, I was sixteen years old, so that reviews of my age a little bit, yeah. Uh, when Ralph Lichkin came out, um, I was 16, and remember, I multi-boxed like seven or eight characters. Well, I say multi-boxed, I had seven or eight alts. So please, I did that. I had seven or eight alts, all level 80, you know, running running well, right? So uh, I think it would have been much nicer to me and much more respectful of the player to allow me to just transact my character, right? If I could just sell my Frost Mage on the market, and then I, you know, maybe I put $10 in or $100 more in, and I can get a fully get Retribution Paladin or something. Even though I would never want to play a Retribution Paladin, but you know what I mean. Yeah. So I think that's the kind of promise of like uh of, of like at least blockchain and games in general. And then um rather than kind of having it be forced to sustain wages, um, which I don't think was ever the promise of take to own games really. It's just kind of the narrative that it's managed to sort of take along the way. It's like now, hey, let's let's move this more towards a more productive conversation where we can see like what are different ways in which we can build sustainable game economies, right? And what are different reasons why players might end up paying for games, paying for games, right? That mm. don't involve like, you know, new players coming in and speculation, all of these things. Mm -hmm. Those are my comments. I have a bit of a, a quick comment, but I don't know if that's a t good time for it. Do it. Go ahead. Yeah. So uh, <clears throat> I've been thinking a lot about sort of behavior, right? And I think that if you look at games, like, you know, one of the things that makes games sustainable is this like fairness, right? And I think that two of the things that make games engaging are what I call mechanism discovery and hopium, right? And so the thing that's really interesting is when you combine mechanism discovery and hopium, Right. Then you create this novel form of kind of engagement. Right. And and when you combine. So to me, the thing that's so interesting is, is that like at the moment, you're absolutely right. One of the things that's supporting the unsustainability is actually the availability of uh, investment capital. Right. That investment capital is driving this. Right. But if you you know, so we we brought like OpenSea and YGG both to 
Andreessen Horowitz, and, and you know they they also invested in Axie directly, right? And and to me, studying how they do business, they really do their math homework, right? So they do what Peter Thiel calls tenth grade math, which is they really study the kind of math, right? And so the the thing that's interesting to me about the hopium of the economic metagame of play to earn gaming. Right, it's really that it's mathematically an attack on the free-to-play model and the limits of the free-to-play model, right? And I think the thing that's so amazing about what I've seen as an investor is I've seen a huge shift in the talent base, right? So if you understand human freedom, what you're going to understand is that free-to-play has reached the end of its useful life cycle with the developers of the games themselves, right? So this, to me, is kind of akin to the multi-level attack on this kind of like Abraham Maslow's hierarchy that we saw with um, President Lincoln's uh, Emancipation Proclamation, right? Which is effectively that this is a declaration of independence at many levels, including at the game developer level. So game developers, you know, are going wholesale into this model because they're hoping, they're filled with hopium and they're filled. So to me, like this is an attack on the economic base of free to play, which has outlived its usefulness. Like, like free to play is dead. Like it's not, it's not a good model. Nobody's happy with free to play. I, I agree. I agree with um, Soph. I'm agreed with the, the death of free to play, the proclamation. That'll be that'll be something that uh, it's incredibly joyful for me. Um, because I think, yeah, like uh, just this entire idea that um, you sort of submit your game to metrics and you you know you're purely defining the success of the game whether it hits certain benchmarks and metrics or not. They're kind of creating games that are purely data driven rather than games that are made out of love. You know, like you sort of have a vision. I think. The, you know, every game developer kind of enters into the world as, as, a, as a child, and I'm being a bit romantic, I guess, I don't know. But like, when you play the games that you really enjoyed as a kid, there was not this free-to-play model, right, that sort of came about. And it's like, oh, in order to make games, you need to sort of like squeeze and, you know, make sure that it monetizes in this one particular way, you know? It's like, well, the end goal or the end vision of games in particular is like, hey, I want to have a community or a space where I can play with my friends, right? And that's it. I, you enjoy the community space. And the question then for you is like, hey, I have this community space. How do I keep that sustainable, right? How do I make sure that that space is there forever, you know, to perpetuity, so that I can have a space to hang out with my friends all the time, right? Club Penguin, for example, was one of those spaces, and they didn't manage to find a way to keep sustainable, right? They got acquired by Disney for, I don't know, some crazy amount of money. Um, I should probably look that up uh, <laughs> in Metaverses right now. Okay, so Redcon, Redcon. Club Penguin used to monetize using paid memberships, right? Which was not the ideal model for them, apparently, because it got acquired for 350 million US dollars by Disney. Right? They had a 200 million user accounts at their peak, and yet they still got shut down in 2017 because it wasn't profitable. <laughs> and the question is, Sad. hey, how do, you, how do you monetize now these games without having this advertisement, without selling people cosmetics and making people feel bad about like, their, their ranking, or without like, giving them leaderboards and all, all these different things? How do you monetize in a natural kind of way? Right? That, that kind of follows the, the gameplay. And that's the interesting question is we can dive deep onto all these different like uh, potential games that we can work on because there's now this new potential to create play-to-earn economies, right? So that's the hopium, mm. I think, that, that Miko is touching on, like the hopium for game devs, for investors, for players too. I see Lars, Lars wants to answer. Go ahead, man. Yeah, so this is interesting. There's some interesting points to bring up, hopium. Like, I definitely believe that, like, one thing I want to get across, I'm a big blockchain skeptic, big NFT gaming skeptic, but I really love the promises. Um, my skepticism comes in on whether they're being delivered or, or can be delivered. Now, if if I see it, I'll believe it. Like, I'll believe it when I see it. I, I, I am happy to do that. And so um, I like to, to frame what I'm saying as challenges. So let's talk about those challenges. Like, for one, we just talked about, I see this a lot. Free-to-play is held up as kind of the bugbear that um, blockchain gaming is going to deliver us from. And I get a little confused about that sometimes because, like, for instance, we just made this big argument about, you know, I mean, I'm not a fan of free-to-play gaming. Um, it's kind of become this necessary evil where, like, if you want to get work, you work on these games or, like, like my business partner has worked on them for, like, the past 10 years, right? But I don't, I don't really like them. I think they can be exploitative um, and they kind of take us back to the dark days of the arcade where, like, like failure avoidance is a top monetization method you know, and like Candy Crush and stuff, which I hate. And, um, but it's what it takes to make them massively, massively profitable. And I don't love that. 
But um, at the same time, you like talk about it's like we don't want to make metric driven games. But at the same time, if blockchain games are supposed to deliver from that, I'm seeing them employ full time game economists, little Alan Greenspans <laughs> that are there to pull the levers and like now you got to make a game and prevent inflation. You know, like so. So I mean. On the one hand, like maybe that's a more interesting, wholesome problem to solve is the argument you're making. And if you want to make that argument, you know, I can accept that in good faith. But like, I feel like we've got more numbers to balance than we did before, not less. Um, but the other approach is the other, um, I, I do like what you said that, you know, if you want to have a sustainable model, you need to make the numbers balance out. One way could be like, okay, you go in $5, maybe you can get three out. It's like, totally buy that, right? It makes sense. Like the snake does not eat all of itself, you know, so it can grow over time. Um, and I think that's a shift that we're seeing. We're already seeing people move away from play to earn to play and earn, you know, and I'm uh, sorry if I stole anyone's bold prediction. But um, the other thing is that um, uh, I do think that um, it's interesting that the, the sponsor model in Axie was not the original goal. It emerged from the community, but they totally embraced it. And I think they totally embraced the whole like, you can earn a real wage with this game thing. So even if they didn't intend it, they definitely leaned into it. And everyone got really excited about it. And then when the numbers came out, you know, people got a little less excited. Now we're distancing ourselves from that. I think we should acknowledge that we were, everyone was really excited about it for a hot minute. Um, and I think the future of play to earn, like I've said, is um, really thinking about where value comes from. I think there is some risk for games that are fun that there are, like a lot of human psychology studies that have shown that when you are intrinsically motivated to do something, you get something completely different out of it than when you're extrinsically motivated. And I think if y'all want to build an entire new world-changing industry off of that, you should invest in more research onto that subject to see what happens when someone is happy to work in the garden, um, but then you pay them $5 and suddenly they're like, well, that wasn't worth $5 of time. And it changes their entire psychological outlook. I mean, I think the research on that exists, but it's a little undercooked. Mm. I would, I, I would seriously invest in more um, to see how that plays out. But I, but I want to retort there, right? Because uh, you know, one of the things that's provable is is that the grind mechanic is actually a, almost a universal, right? And you know, I just out myself and wow, like. Uh, you know, affliction warlock. So, you know, I think for me, like the whole thing about the grind mechanic is, is that we all started with things like level grinding, you ended up at things like daily grinding and faction grinding, you know, but if you zoom the lens out even further, every major world religion has a grind mechanic, right? And so the grind mechanic serves a function of the proof of devotion. And if it's not grindy, then it doesn't prove devotion. Right. So so the point being that that people think grinding is this unsustainable thing that's annoying. And that because of the toxicity of free to play, they think that grinding is only an economic function of lazy developers trying to squeeze value out of daily content. Right. So, oh, we make this one content and then we force the players to play it every day. But if you go outside of gaming and look at all the world religions of prayer and chanting and prostrations and like meditation, all of these grind mechanics, you begin to realize that the idea of humans striving towards something through difficulty is actually part of the uh, hero's journey, right? So so to me, I think that this, this kind of particular unique style, like for example, if you look at uh, Heracles and the uh, you know, the the so-called uh, Herculean tasks, like the, the one of them was cleaning a stable full of giant horses, which naturally produce giant horse shit. So like, you know, it's a guy who's cleaning a, a giant horse shits, you know, so like that's a hero, right? That's what a hero looks like to the Greeks. So I guess what I'm saying is, is that like, you know, this mechanism itself has a deep human resonance and it creates a catharsis. I, you know, is this a temporary state? Uh, you know, I think that people working in a play game is, a, it's almost like a catharsis, right? I think you're right. I think the ultimate end game is people converting their non-fungible time into non-fungible assets, things like character customization, or even becoming like NFT artists, or even play, or even work to earn, right? But, and eventually the future of work is people working for the delight of their community. So I get that. I get that that's an eventual target, but I, I just want to highlight that like, you know, people grinding things isn't, that isn't temporary, right? That's mm, also yeah. durable. And I just want to get a point at Trace here. Hope you don't mind. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, speaking of, of grinding um, and proof of devotion, I think 
the entire point of this grinding, just to add on to that, and then sort of bringing it back to like what other needs that play to earn and play and earn can fulfill, right? Is that, you know, this grinding um, basically provides a sort of friction and ability for players to prove that they care about the game, that prove that they are part of the community, right? Like when someone's yeah. like, you know, just like music, and, and when people like ask you, what's your favorite Oasis song? And you reply Wonderwall, you know, Oasis fans, fans are going to be like, come on. <laughs> You know, if you're like, how far, what was your arena rank in World of Warcraft? You know, what's your, how far did you get in StarCraft 2? And I was a Masters League. And then, you know, um, Jan, the part, uh, our partner at Delphi, his grandmaster. And I was like, All right, okay, I got I to get out of here. You know, so there is that kind of like a status almost. And, you know, it fulfills some sort of esteem needs, needs for recognition. And that's, you know, why players might want to invest time and energy in the game. On a separate parallel point, so tying back to Axies, since that was kind of the original contention, right? the current economical model of Axie, I think there is a unique selling point that, that it gives, um, right? Play to Earn kind of brings this uh, financialization element, which, you know, some might feel like it's a bit like, oh, you know, we're trying to do this financial game models in games. Uh, so sort of bring financial element into games, right? Um, but I think what's really interesting is that you can actually end up offering experiences of loss and triumph that's actually tied to external financial rewards, right? And... The, the thing is that X Infinity and along with Yu-Gi-Oh! Games, uh, you know, companies like Yu-Gi-Oh! Games, they uh, can deliver on giving basically unique emotions and sort of unique gameplay experiences, right? The ability to engage in, you know, financial mentorship and empowerment, right? So, you know, having some of these managers that are very close ties and relationships with their scholars, right? Or, or even the, the, the mentees, you can say. Right, You're creating kind of a virtual community and support for, for folks in local communities. Right, it doesn't have to be work. It can also be something that you kind of engage in, like a knitting club in the evening or whatever. It is you play XE together, you discuss strategies, you talk meta game, you talk where the market's gonna go, and that's fun for that can be fun for some people too. You know, there's this, and when that fun comes, that's when people are willing to say like, hey, um, instead of taking 70, 30 and leaving the, the scholar with, with with seventy, I'm okay to giving. 80-20, like why not, right? I'm okay giving all of it because I I just wanna, you know, see my scholars do good. And I'm not I'm not gonna say it's for every everybody's gonna do that, right? And I'm not gonna say like the business model for every single like person is gonna turn out this way. But I've definitely spoken with quite a few, like uh, for example, scholarship managers ad hoc who you know, through my interactions in the metaverse, so on, so on, blah blah, in Discord and all of that, right? Like they learn about like how they're using different different items. Like for example, sandbox land, and level five wrote about this, right? In sandbox land, um, with sandbox land, there was this one person I was interacting with who told me he wanted to make a small estate for the for the Axie scholars to hang out and play mini games. He said the typical scholar is seventy percent typical ratio for SLP like issuance is seventy percent scholar, thirty percent manager. But I want to do seventy percent scholar. 20% manager, and I want to have esports amongst my scholars. And they can just play games and we play the games together. We'll be a little family and such, you know? So that's the kind of, I think, the angle that they aim to go for. And there's these different sort of units of, of uh, folks that engage in the game, right? You have, you have families, you have nations, right? The Axie Nation is the sort of newest narrative, I think, that uh, has been emerging recently with uh, the flag of Lunasia coming up and such, right? We, that's something we can discuss as well. But I'm also happy to sort of bring the discussion closer towards like talking about other play and economies because that'll be interesting too for us. Yeah. And how do we design them? Right. Mm -hmm. So there's three things I want to do. I'll, I'll address the first two briefly because the third one I think is the interesting one as you just brought up. So on grind, like, I mean, grind is an ancient principle of almost all game design. And you, if, if you just give people a win button to push, they have no fun. Like, it's a delicate balance. I mean, I, I don't really disagree with any of that. Second thing is that... Um, is the issue of community. You know, I hear this a lot that, you know, it's not just, people aren't just there to earn, they're there to do all these other things. I'm totally willing to buy that. And I just think people who are invested in that being true should go and prove it. They should do a survey. Like for, uh, Sky Mavis is valued at multiple billions of dollars. Just get some grad students, put them on a plane down to the Philippines and knock some doors and do just a big ethnographic study. Like just do a survey on player motivations. Like if we are betting the farm on community, we should be sure it's there. And it should be easy to prove if it's true. So I would just say, you know, we just need data behind that um, if people are assuming that's that's the case. Because um, it seems like a big thing to make a big bet on if we don't know for sure. Um, and then... We know anecdotally it's true. Well, we've, we, should, we, should, we should know um, 
we should know on a much broader basis that it's true and not just the stated preference, but a revealed preference that holds up in light of depressed earnings. If I'm wrong, it should be easy to prove me wrong. And so I would like to see the data on that. But moving on, the thing I think we'll be really interested in talking about is the future of things, not just Sky Mavis, but anyone contending for this crown as a platform, right? Platforms already make the big bucks. And, um, you know, and Sky Mavis has plans for that, but so does everybody else, right? Everyone building on Polygon and Solana and all these other things is it's like everyone, you know, Steam has cut off distribution. It's hard to get onto the app stores. Microsoft has made its statements. Um, so there's this hunger now for a blockchain gaming platform and everyone's like, I'm going to be the one, I'm going to be the one, no, I'm going to be the one. And so the question is, who's going to build it, right? And I um, know that the Lunacy SDK is coming out for Sky Mavis. I'm not sure how many people read to the second part of the deconstruction, but that's another major part we have major concerns about because the land grab model has been something that we've seen replicated, standardized, and templatized across emerging blockchain games. And based off of all the available evidence we've seen from real-world economic history, as well as the 30-year observed history of MMOs, everywhere you have what we call land-like assets, which are any assets that are scarce in supply, necessary for production, and obtain locational value based off their proximity to economic activity centers or population centers, you get a housing crisis, just like the one in San Francisco. And what happens there is that you incentivize people to hold empty lots out of use and charge people rent to access the most valuable digital real estate is the exact opposite of an incentive to get people to build. Now, there's some people who've cottoned onto this and are using policies from the real world like land reform or land value taxes to deal with it. But um, another thing you just do in the digital world yeah, is print, print more. you make all the land you want, right? You know, Roblox is a super... Roblox is a super successful platform and like their digital land is the little like slot for your game. You can have as many as you want, you know, um, you pay them in your cut, but you don't have to like pay for the right to effectively be on a two dimensional chart um, of the world. And some people like point back to um, Second Life as like a predecessor of virtual real estate, but they actually their land wasn't truly land like because they could they had enough of it for everybody and uh, they could infinitely expand it. So I'm concerned about um, business models like Yield Guild that specifically look for land-based assets to invest in. I think it's something that'll make a lot of money in the short term, but it doesn't seem like something that's going to birth a platform because like people already like are looking at platforms like Steam, you got to pay 30%. It's like now I got to, like, the whole point of Web3 is supposed to remove middlemen and now we're adding virtual landlords to the mix. doesn't seem like an incentive to build, but I think platforms that get this have a much bigger shot at becoming this promised new platform for blockchain gaming. Um, I think they need to double down on figuring out how to actually incentivize other people to come and build on their platform and share in that wealth rather than encourage people to just kind of speculate on how can I extract value from people who might come to build. Um, and that's my fundamental critique of the, the land template model that's that's been spread among the first generation of games. I think they're going to learn a hard lesson. That's my bold mm. prediction. No, I, I kind of love I love the tone of this. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, same, same as Ryan, actually, which right. is that the, to me, this is like the most literally constructive criticism, you know, so I, I it's literally constructive. It's basically like y'all should incentivize builders. And, you know, I, I'm not that's not that's definitely if I'm wrong, it'll be obvious. It's definitely not wrong. I, I think I think, you know, it's it's a big thing. Anyhow. Uh, mm -hmm. um, but yeah, do, do you want to say more? Yeah, I, I completely I completely agree with uh, with Nico, like you know, like on, on land and such. And I remember Laza Laza came in. I first met Laza the Colonel talk actually. So he came in and spoke to a bunch of us at the Colonel Block Four about land. And he wrote this excellent article on uh, land land and uh, how it's gonna skill land speculation is gonna kill your game, right? It's a wonderful title. Um, highly recommend a read. Um, but he also wrote this uh, excellent book review of um, I think. Henry George, right? Was his name? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's on, on George's text. Was that you who wrote that? I'm shocked at how many people like read that. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's, it's, I think I think um, there are two kind of big questions here, right? Following on from like, so now the last has kind of like elucidated the problem here for us, right? So it's like, how can we, one, how can we design land-like assets, right? And is it sustainable to have land-like assets in games? <sighs> What does that look like? Um, and what could, could that look like in the future games that we design? That's the first question. Second question is for games that have already kind of boxed themselves into this, like, I've already sold 30,000 pieces of land. What can I do with the 30,000 pieces of land, right? What are they going to do such that, one, it kind of keeps that, keeps that, uh, 
you know, allow, keeps that promise to the, the, the initial buyer, like for example, Yukio, who has supported this, these like landline assets um, and bought them in the hope, right? How do we have support them to sort of maintain the investment? Second, while still incentivizing asset turnover, for example, or incentivizing creators to come in and build in the platform, right? So I think that's a really important question that we need to answer. So one is for the ones that are not yet in place, and second is for the ones that are already there. Right? So Miko, please. But isn't YGG buying up land and items and things in in developers' games? Isn't that incentivization of builders, right? In the sense that like they're they're kind of setting up shop in your virtual world, right? So so you know all of that inflow produces incentives for builders, economic incentives, right? Because it's like, here's a bunch of money. You know, we're, we're paying you a bunch of verifiable money to like build, please build more, right? That's a, that's a really good point. So let's dig into that. So in the sense that um, it's all about short-term versus long-term incentive and who is you're incentivizing to create value. I mean, yeah. land ultimately is just a metaphor, right? Like you could make a bunch of immovable statues of cows that in the real world we might call capital, that in the game actually function like land. It's, it's all about the properties that the asset has rather than what you call it. Like in EVE Online, they had land-like assets that were actually factories, but they functioned like land because they were fixed in supply and you couldn't make any more um, and you needed them to build ships. So um, a one way that a lot of land is used is basically, they call it land, but it's basically just shares, right? You know what I mean? Um, because they can expand the supply or, or they change... It's not necessary for production or, or whatever, right? And um, so that's one way I think that people will address um, bottom coalitions resistant to change and keep their promises that they'll do what's called land dilution or land evolution, where they change one of those three properties of scarcity, necessity for production, or locational value. You add teleport to your game and the locational value goes down. If I can teleport from my mansion in Pluto to Times Square, and real estate in Times Square might go down. You know, um, or you can make it less necessary production or less relatively necessary by creating other ways you can do that same production. So that's one way I think people will keep their promises while not killing their economies. Um, the other thing is that I think that um, if we want to like talk about investing creators is it's like if you want to create a platform and the purpose of that platform, the promise of its value is it's going to be the next steam. All these third party developers are going to come in and want to build. You really need to look at everyone who's tried this in the past. like. I used to get pitches in my inbox for people who wanted to compete with Steam until I got so frustrated, I wrote an article called, So You Want to Compete with Steam? Because none of these people had the mindset of a game developer. They're like, you're going to get 28% revenue share. And I'm like, yeah, and you've got no customers. Like, give me like 100% revenue share and I still won't show up, right? And so um, when it talks about like incentives to produce, you really need to think about that. So Axie's advantage is they've got the mind share, right? The question is if they're going to stick around as earnings go down. Maybe they will, maybe they won't. We'll see. You know, it'll be really easy for me to be wrong about a bunch of stuff because we made uh, we made testable hypotheses. Um, so the Axie is also well positioned because they have two platforms. They've got Axie as a platform with Lunasia, which I think is going to suffer from the land problem, especially because they've sold like lands worth millions of dollars. Those people will be mad if they make any changes. But they've also got Ronin and Sky Mavis Hub, which hasn't locked into any particular model, which could be, you know, if they could parlay that user growth into being like, okay, well, anyone who wants to build on Sky Mavis, it's like, you want to build an audience, come to us, you know, like even, they could even, like if Axie gets in trouble, they could even parlay that into, it's like, well, instead of leaving for some other blockchain or ecosystem, well, Sky Mavis Hub just launched three new games today from third-party developers, you know, you're, you're a little tired of Axie, try these, you know, so yeah, I wouldn't, Right, you know, skeptical as I've been of Sky Mavis, I wouldn't write them off entirely. And so the question about platforms is, how do you incentivize development? Like, I think a lot of those pre-sales of items and stuff is money that goes to the developer. But where is the money coming for third-party developers and what is going to make them want to show up? Typically, they either want money up front or a promise of an audience, um, in my experience. And, um, and people will figure out how to do that, presumably. And I think that's what the conversation becomes about. Mm -hmm. All right. Cool. I, I get to say something again. It's it's 44 minutes in, in my podcast. That's awesome. Thanks. <laughs> that was a very interesting conversation. Um, I'd like to, to pull us back a little bit to to like what we what my intention was <laughs> for this podcast, which was uh, the play to earn economy. Um, make yeah. a little bit of my own case. Um, so there, there's a big bit of a build up for for um, the question that I'm going to ask. So when I got into crypto, um. One of the realizations I made of Web3 and, and why it was going to be so so 
industry defining and, and is gonna it was gonna be so impactful is because it allows to distribute value in a very granular level. So to give you an example, um, a platform like um, Instagram, every picture that you post as an Instagram user adds value to that platform. And so there's millions of people up there, and the only reason they're there is because their friends are also there, and they have you know pictures and and, and little movies that they post there. And so you know every and if you have a million followers, you're actually very um, helpful, or at least you create a lot of value for Instagram. But the problem is that because of how the internet is designed, where there's no layer of of there's no native layer to exchange value, that value completely gets captured by the the application itself. And so in this case, it's it's Instagram or or the company Facebook. And so they get the money. You create the value. You make sure that other others come to the platform, and they make the money on the ads that they display to the eyeballs that you draw, right? And so I think that's what Web three is going to disrupt. So Web three is going to make make it so that you are going to you know provide value to any kind of platform, and you're going to one be able to capture a large share of the value that you help create. And so in this, in the case of, of an Instagram-like platform, um, you know, you would, you know, be able to, for every person that sees your pictures, for example, you would get like a fraction of a cent, something like that. And where if you have like a very, very significant following, that can start becoming more and more. Um, and so, so, so this is talking about, you know, a, a traditional Web2 platform like, like Instagram. And now... I pull that through into games. And so my question is, okay, you want to have a play-to-earn game. You have to think about, okay, as a player, what value can I add, right? And in the case of Instagram, it's really, really simple, right? You're actually, you're essentially producing art, you know, some visual art that people enjoy looking at, and that's why they come to that platform. And so now my question is, in a game, play-to-earn game, in the same sense as, like, where does the value of a player get added um, and where does it come from? What kind of value can a player create that they can be rewarded for? And I think that's how, like the answer to that is how we can create sustainable play to earn economies. And now <laughs> I'd like to um, have your thoughts on one, like, do you agree? Am I, am I just bullshitting here? Or, and, and, and two, if you agree, um, I'd like you to help me think about, I have a few examples of, of value that could potentially be, be, be relevant here. Um, but yeah, to, to start reasoning about that. Lars, you have your finger <laughs> raised, so go ahead. I'll be, I'll, be, I'll be quick. I think you're conflating two kinds of players. So Instagram has two kinds of consumers. It is people who browse Instagram as people who post to Instagram, right? Mm-hmm. So as creators and consumers, broadly speaking. And games are the same way, uh, especially UGC games, um, games that allow users to generate content. In, in a certain sense, in a multiplayer game specifically, um, one of the ways you contribute to a multiplayer game is by being a CCU, a concurrent user. You know, people look as like, oh, it's got this many CCUs. This game is mm-hmm. dead. There's nobody to play with. So if you provide an interesting community that's like, you have, there's players to play with, you're providing a warm body, um, that's value right there. I think one of the things, this is where I believe in the promises of blockchain, but I'm skeptical about whether they'll be delivered. If you can deliver them, I'll be excited, is that you're essentially describing a model where you can turn something like a social network or anything else or a game into like a producer or consumer-owned co-op which is exciting to me, but I, I'm skeptical about whether that can actually be done. If it can be done, well then sign me the heck mm-hmm. up. Um, but I think the biggest obstacle is like like a lot of questions like, why do we need blockchain for this? It's like, why do we need DAOs? Like, can't you just sell shares? The answer is no, you can't <laughs> sell shares to regular people if they're not, um, if they're not accredited investors. And um, so that makes me wonder if the law is gonna come in and be like, and you can't sell DAOs either and we're gonna ban you if you try that. Who knows, you know, that makes me nervous that that will happen. If it doesn't happen, well, congratulations, you've got your use case. Um, And then the question becomes, how do you connect the fact that I own some token in a DAO to any actual power over the organization I'm trying to control? And it not being just like, oh, got to trust me. It's like companies screw over their actual legal shareholders all the time who have the actual power to sue them. So it makes me wonder, like, how do you control a DAO? One part, if I squint, that I see could do it is power of the purse, if the DAO holds money that pays the organization that does the stuff, then cryptographically the vote can be like, we don't open the wallet till you do what we say. And I have to admit, even as a skeptic, that's real leverage. Um, but beyond that, um, it, it feels very tenuous what the connection is. But I very much love the promise, if it can actually be delivered, which I'm currently skeptical of, but you can prove mm-hmm. me wrong, that we can have a co-op of producers that actually own their value. And I think the way you produce value is by contributing to UGC, creating user-generated content, mods, stuff like that. I think you also, to really have it be community-owned, you kind of have to bite the bullet and make your app open source so that um, 
the de- so that the community actually has power over the developer, mm-hmm. right? Because right now, if you have a vertically integrated app, it doesn't matter if it's connected to a blockchain. All that value really lives in the app. You need to be able to fork the blockchain and the app. And I think that's how the community really establishes, even begins to establish ownership. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are all my thoughts on that. Um, contradict or agree or critique to your your heart's desire. Yeah, no, I mean, I'll just, I'll just, I mean, build build on what you said. So I, I wrote down two things of value just to, I, I, I hear your, your, um, your critique, and and I can also like, I'm, I'm as excited as you are about what you talked about. And so what I wrote down was one. Um, so uh, CCU, as you said, you add value as a player just by being like a warm body, as you said. And I, for me, actually, the the example that I use for that is when I when I was playing Warzone, and I killed that last player, and I heard him scream in his microphone. The feeling that that gave me was way better than just you know just just killing like uh, some uh, honestly like the fact that you actually beat a real human being um, actually make that game more more in- enjoyable for me. I'm I'm an extremely bad person. I know. I'm very sorry. Um, and then. <laughs> uh, that's why we didn't do that, man. That's why we didn't do that. Uh, there you go. Uh, <laughs> Question mark. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and and then the second is UGC, right? Where, where players actually create things that others then can enjoy or perhaps even use, right? Um, totally get it. Um, and I think there, there's actually more more potential, you know, value dr- uh, drivers there. Uh, but I'd like to open it up to uh, Miko, perhaps. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I think you're describing sort of the machine zone uh, proposition, even though that game was pay to win, right? But the idea that you're killing other player humans is like this kind of evil glee. So, you know, but I would say kind of just as a capstone, like to me, it's my thesis that like uh, we're going to stop talking about blockchain games and we're only going to talk about games that don't give you ownership uh, while you play, right? So, you know, I, I think that to me, you know, my bold claim is that, you know, there's 2.7 billion gamers in the world and, you know, 54% of them in, in Asia, most of them mobile. And, and you know, I think they're all coming over to this side, you know, and I think it could be that they get four bucks back for putting in five, but like, you know, it's better than zero, right? And and right now that's what they're getting. They're getting zero. So, so you know, anything better than zero is going to be better for them. And that's why they're going to all come. And I think that the talent I'm seeing coming into the game making side is, is top class. It's really good talent. There are some um, freaking amazing game makers that are now doing this. So I, I'm pretty confident that it's not going to be like just a bunch of shitty games that people are playing because they're being paid to. I 100% agree with Nico here. Like some of the games that we've, we've supported, I can't speak about. Otherwise, I might lose my job. But uh, <laughs> yeah, like some of the games that we're looking at, we've invested in, um, absolutely amazing. The kind of... Uh, yeah, it's gonna elevate. Uh, I think elevate you know, play on gaming to the next level. Like people will like. I, I can't. I can't even describe it anymore. But uh, like, like um, some even some of the games that we're looking at, some of the teams we're looking at from you know previous triple E type titles, right? Um, you know, persistence of MMOs that have lasted many many years, and you know now there's you know teams that have worked on those kind of MMOs now coming up and saying like, hey, we want to do play to earn. We want to do play and earn. How do we do that, right? And the thing is, they come to the no, ask us for example. Um, so they because uh, we did help uh, to so Delphi did help to build, for example, um, X Infinity's tokenomics. For example, we were also very early stage investors in Yu-Gi-Oh and X Infinity and Luvium. So I think one of the key value drivers actually that I would like to explore and talk about um, even beyond like this kind of like wage or this kind of like um, wiki creation all that is actually entertaining spectator sports, right? Esports. Right? And not just esports in the terms of like um, really hardcore esports, but like you know the entire ecosystem around streaming, entire ecosystem around paying so that you entertain. Right? It's the same kind of um, entertainment you see in football, you see in basketball. Right? When you are playing those games, people watch those games, and you know they get in because it's free to play, it's free to start. Right? So Lars, I completely agree with yourself. Very very early. Or the idea that like, you know, and this is my bold prediction now, now I like to say it, that I think the next largest kind of um, really, really wildly successful play and earn game is going to be free to start, right? It's not going to cost a single cent to begin playing and yet it will be sustainable and yet it will monetize through play and earn and blockchain, right? So it's going to have blockchain in it, it's going to be play and earn and it's going to be wildly successful and really fun for everyone involved, right? I think a big component of this. Play and or not play, yeah, play and earn. Yeah. So 
esports, uh, esports, I think, is a huge value driver. So spectatorial kind of pleasure, right? The joy you get from watching, you know, a personality you you enjoy succeed. You buy their merch, right? People like Roger Federer. Why wouldn't people like uh, Blitz Chung? Sorry, wrong name. Edit that name. <laughs> um, <laughs> why wouldn't people like Flash, for example, right? Starcraft, right? Why wouldn't people want to support that merch? Why, you know, the um, prize pools and such is just another way for play to earn. And then you have uh, economies around coaching, right? So now I could have a StarCraft II coach come and help, help on my team, um, for example. And I could support teams. I could sponsor teams, right? So someone, someone would come in and say like, hey, I want to increase my branding power. Like this is a huge spectator sport. Now let's make a Delphi Digital um, StarCraft team, which is something I, I constantly want to pitch, but I, I don't know if they allow me to do it yet. <laughs> but yeah, you know, this is kind of ideas that are, that are, um, Possible, I think uh, it's a whole new set of value that comes with regards to games as entertainment, right? You start to see like that kind of um, spectatorial dynamic come out and play out, and the whole business model of esports moving into play to earn. So yeah, that's that's one possible revenue driver mm -hmm. as well. Yeah. So yeah, this kind of um, and value drivers, right? So that's that's my take. Yeah. What's your take on that, on that, Lars? Uh, yeah. I mean, we're we're getting close to end. Do you want bold predictions now? I mean, uh, it doesn't matter for me. It's okay to go a little bit, a little bit over if you guys have time. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I think it's interesting when you say about esports. It's um, we we had the whole esports rise and then overhype and then and then kind of arrived at a steady state. And now, like people are talking about esports and blockchain again and whether it's going to be huge. And you know, maybe there's something there. Certainly, I think again, I like to focus on promises and because. Some of those promises are really beautiful. And again, that, that's where I always root my skepticism in is it's not about like this stuff is useless. It's about, I like these promises. How do you get there? And let's not assume that you just magically get there. Um, because I've seen a lot of companies fail whenever they're like, we're going to build this huge platform. This was pre-crypto. We're going to build this huge platform. Everyone's going to come. Everyone's going to create all this value. And it's like, yeah, but there's like 50 of you guys. So why is it going to be you? You know, and why is it not going to be the incumbent? And you also haven't, you don't understand the mentality of the people you're expecting to come. Like, and so my kind of concern with the whole play to earn stuff is that it's attracted a particular kind of customer, especially because nobody's done like the really hardcore studies. And um, also the problem with studies is like getting people not to tell you what they think you want to hear, like actual do independent studies. Like that's my concern about people talking to their guilds and their managers about their motivation. Oh, I'm here for, you know, altruistic reasons. Um, <laughs> please keep paying me. And so, I mean, maybe I'm wrong and, and a good study should prove that. Um, but like my concern is that there may not be able to make the bridge over to the conventional audience. You've seen this mediocre, me, not mediocre, meteoric growth, but we don't know what the cap is, right? You know, and it's like some people said, it's like, it's everyone who's like earning under a certain minimum wage or stuff. It's like, well, maybe, but like, even that, like, like there, there's a clock on even that. And so the question is, um, I talked previously about the crypto culture war for my last bold prediction, my last Nico podcast. Um, between game developers and game players and crypto stuff, which we're seeing a lot of backlash about. I'm sure you've all experienced that personally. Um, and I don't wish culture war backlash on anyone, even if I disagree with them strongly. But um, I think there's also a crypto culture war going on within blockchain, which is between all of the new people, uh, sometimes derisively called like crypto bros. Um, and no, I'm not calling any of you that, to be clear. And then like the old original like, Bitcoin people who came from like cypherpunk land, you know, where it was really like the crypto is in cryptography, right? Those old like hardcore anarchist libertarians, you know, who are all like EFF stands and all that. And like plenty of you, I'm sure, have streaks that too. I don't even know what direction any of you come from. I'm not making any assumption about your motivations. But the thing is, um, the, the, the difference is that is between the people who want to build like an Apple-like vertically integrated ecosystem with closed source apps and companies registered in the Caymans versus people who really want to figure out how to create, like, even if they haven't figured it out yet, and even if they never figure it out, like, their goal, sincerely, is to create these weird, distributed, player, creator-owned co-ops using the power of math and the internet somehow, you know? And, like, <laughs> I'm skeptical of both, but I really admire the motivations of these more, um, because it's, 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 they very much had a problem they were trying to solve. Like Bitcoin is supposed to be a currency. Turns out it's not a currency. Um, not sure if stable coins will survive regulation. Um, if they do, maybe I'll eat a little crow. Um, 
And um, if everything moves to proof of stake, then the environmental concerns are, are strongly addressed and that's good. Um, so like my bold prediction is that there's a internal crypto culture war. Um, and I would like to see the old guard win on that one um, and drag things away from hype and more towards fulfilling promises. Like, so when we say like, for the first time, people can own things. That can mean like eight different things. It can mean assets can be transferred. It can mean no one can take my asset away from me. It means the value of my asset will not go down. It can mean so many things, but it all comes down on the enforceability of the claim. And right now I feel like the enforceability of the claim is like, if that closed source centralized app goes away, like I have a receipt on a blockchain, but the value of my embodied asset is gone. And then the promise is, well, someone else will embody it for you. I'm like, your incentives feel very undercooked if you're expecting a third-party developer to make my digital monkey sing and dance for free and expend labor on their own part. But maybe someone will figure out how to get those incentives to work and provide a thriving ecosystem. And I want to see the conversation move entirely to grappling with that, past the hype, past the puff, past the hype curve into the trough of boring measured success. Um, that is what I would like to see. And um, I'm skeptical that it will, but in the world where I, you know, continue to be on friendly terms at all with blockchain, that's the world in, in, in which, in which it goes. Um, Lars, b boring measured success in crypto land. That's not what we do here, sir. Um, I'm very yeah. sorry, but, uh, it's either to the moon or it's <laughs> no, no, it's sorry. yeah. Um, yeah, but, uh, very good points. Um, yeah, let's, let's start doing our, our, uh, bold predictions. So Ryan, you've shared one, if you want, you can perhaps after Miko, uh, share another one. If, if one comes up to mind, uh, Miko, go ahead. Floor is yours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I want to, I want to just jokingly say like your bold prediction that there's going to be a crypto culture war. Like, have you been reading Twitter like the past week? Like it's already like, it's happening. <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's a shooting war, right? Like you saw three arrows capital, like you've seen, you've seen the Solana guys jumping in, like capping on Ethereum. Like it's, it's already a hot war with like shots fired. Right. So like, you know, th this is going on, right? To me, the other the tweet that I found meaningful the other day was calling out the sexual tension between Alice and Bob. That was that was a good one, right? Because you know, to me, it captures kind of this foundational reason that this is foundationally beyond the network effect era, right? So people call this Web three. I keep score differently. Like I think um, Moore's law was the first driver that created these trillion dollar things, which were Apple and Microsoft. Took 44 years for Microsoft to get to a trillion, right? The second wave to me by my count is actually the Metcalf's Law generation, right? So it took Google 22 years, which is half that time to get to uh, the first trillion, right? And, you know, obviously there's inflationary uh, effects here as well. But like, you know, Bitcoin took about... 12 years or about half that time to get to the first trillion, right? And so to me, like this third wave resembles to me more like a Metcalf type of phenomenon, right? So so I think that it isn't the cooler heads that that will prevail, right? In the sense that this is much more about network effects, you know, and it's about kind of incentivized network effects, which I think are perhaps even more kind of violently revolutionary than unincentivized network effects, right? Which which drove the previous generation, right? So I think it's it's going to happen fast. It's going to happen pretty, it will happen kind of violently because it is kind of a revolutionary vibe, right? So, so you know, do I long-term uh, kind of, like all of my chips are on what I call open source money or open source financial infrastructure, right? Which is really that scenario that you're describing of like, you know, virtue prevails and it's the revenge of the nerds, right? And and so like, you know, that's definitely my long-term thesis and hope, you know, and and I don't I don't think that's stoppable, right? Because I think I alluded earlier in the conversation to sort of Abraham Lincoln, you know, and I think this kind of comes all the way back to uh, Dr. King's arc of history that bends towards justice, right? So I, I think, I don't think that, you know, I think the bros are kind of like having a resurgence, but like, it's, so, you know, big deal. Like, it, I, I think hype, hype is, is a thing because it, it's a human thing. But, you know, I, I think all of that eventually gives way to better systems. Mm -hmm. Hype fuels growth. Hype brings new people into the system and new investment. But it also makes a lot of people aware of like what could be done and what can potentially be done, right? And gets people interested and incentivized to begin exploring 
digging below the hype and building things. And, and that and uh, the nice thing about um, and this is kind of an aside to like on-chain gaming and just a hat tip to those guys who are building everything, uh, all their games and the game systems completely on-chain is that whatever they build, it's just going to be there for someone else to take and build upon, right? So Loot started that, uh, not, well, Loot didn't start that. They kind of had a resurgence, created a resurgence of interest in that, just as the art blocks created a resurgence in generative art or resurgence of interest in generative art. Civilization and, uh, you know, progression is kind of cyclical and it's not necessarily linear and up only, contrary to popular belief. Sorry, guys. Mm-hmm. We're all going to make it, but maybe in the long run, right? <laughs> so I think, I think the idea is that you con- constantly contribute and as more people constantly contribute to open core bases, just as last was something towards, right? And you can think of almost as a, you know, Ethereum blockchain or any other blockchain as an open code base that people are contributing to constantly. And I, I think I just wanted to do a head tip here um, to end off with like uh, on-chain games. I have a second bold prediction, right? Wow, novel, crazy, right? Is that uh, on-chain games will explode and explode much, much, much faster than, than we can ever imagine, right? Like it's going to be like, Three months out of nowhere, there's gonna be five hundred thousand, five thousand games. It's gonna be like, uh, it's gonna be like you know the Warcraft three, you know map editor. It's gonna be like the Starcraft map editor because you can just pull all the pieces that people have already built. If someone built Starcraft on chain, please let me know. But if someone built Starcraft on chain, <laughs> you know if I want to build Red Alert on chain, I just grab their Fog of War, I grab their unit, you know, I grab their Pathfinder system. If that's all on chain, it's free for me to use. Right, no one's mm-hmm. no one's kind of regulated. So I think that's the really really interesting stuff that comes even after all of the you know crypto culture wars and even after all the crypto bros uh, retired to the Cayman Islands and have a good time. Yeah. So so may it be. So may it be. That's all I have to say. Love it. Love that take. Thank. Just to clarify, my prediction is actually that the thing that goes meteoric and melts everyone's face will seem boring before it happens. Okay. And so like. We didn't get flying cars. We got Amazon.com. Whether or not that was a good thing, is 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 my point. Okay, interesting, cool. Uh, love that take, Ryan. And um, I'd like to end this off with a quote of uh, I think I believe it was either Chris Dixon or Naval on the on Tim Ferriss podcast a few weeks back, who said that composability is to software as compounding is to money. Um, and I found that really, really cool, uh, really inspiring. Um, and I uh, yeah, fully agree with your your take, Ryan. All right, so that's um, yeah, that's it. That was today's crypto corner. It was a, a very interesting discussion. Uh, Lars, Miko, and Ryan, thank you so much for joining. Uh, it was a real pleasure having you on. You all had uh, some very good insights. I felt like we could have probably do, done three more of these, uh, but we'll <laughs> have to do that uh, some other time. I have to go uh, have my dinner now. Um, so with that, listener, thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed it and you want to join the conversation, you can find us um, in our Discord or uh, yeah, all of us are on Twitter as well. If you want to tell us that we don't make any sense and we don't know what we're talking about, uh, we're used to that. So with that, uh, the Metacast is out and we look forward to speaking to you next episode. Cheers.